Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter 3, as we work through our way through the book of Exodus. God prepares to deliver his people. Did you ever not feel up to a task? Have you ever been uh, called and commissioned to do something, but yet just didn't feel that you're up to it? Or you wish that you had different abilities or different type of personality or characteristics? Every night before she went to bed, little Amy Carmichael, a missionary who lived in the turn of the century, prayed ardently and enthusiastically for God to turn her brown eyes blue as she slept. Like many brown-eyed Irish girls in the 19th century, she adored the typical image of feminine Irish beauty that included blue eyes and white skin. So she prayed fervently, prayed with a hope that it seems only children can muster for God to change the part of her that she seemed to be designed or she seemed to be designed wrong. She desperately hoped for God's intervention, but her brown eyes never turned blue. Amy had brown eyes from the day she was born to the day she was die- she died. Regardless of how much she begged God was not moved to effect a change in the design of Amy. However, Amy's faith was not weakened or lessened by God's refusal. Amy still trusted God, even if she didn't receive everything she wanted. As she grew older, she began teaching a Sunday morning class at a local church for a group of women who were in need of spiritual direction and guidance. This class eventually became a congregation called the Welcome Evangelical Church in Belfast, Ireland. She helped lead and prepare for worship and people began to seek her out more and more frequently with the hope that her dependable and seemingly unrelenting faith may prove contagious. She continued there till she had opportunity to hear Hudson Taylor, the great missionary preacher, preach about mission work in China. Though she suffered from various nerve conditions that ill-fitted her for international mission work, she answered the call all the same. After some time in Japan preparing for it, she moved to the southernmost India to serve as a Christian missionary among the people of the country. Now the missionaries she worked with did everything they could to fit into the culture of which they were coming apart. Amy reflected once that she now understood why she had brown eyes. A blue-eyed missionary would have had been an oddity that never could have truly fit in with the people. And she was thankful that God had persisted in his intricate and elegant design instead of catering to the wishes of a girl who had not yet met her calling. She would even darken her skin with coffee to further aid in the integration and assimilation into Indian culture. And she did all this largely for the children she ministered to in India. Now, it was not uncommon in India in that time for young girls to be given to the local Hindu temple. 
This saved the family of the girl money because they did not have to take care of the young one who was considered a drain on finances, unlike a son who could work, and made money for the priest who would sell these girls as prostitutes to help cover the expenses of the girl's upbringing and the priest who controlled her. Amy could not bear to let this happen, so she devoted herself to rescuing these young girls and housing them in whatever way she could. Soon she had founded and provided a safe haven for over 1,000 children who might otherwise die or be forced into prostitution or slavery. Given her devotion to pursuing and rescuing the abandoned children of India, it was no surprise that Amy insisted, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. Amy gave much and loved much, because she had been intricately and elegantly designed to share God's love with the people who neededly, desperately. You see, God had, had created her with a unique uh, set of personality and characteristics to deliver these young girls from their slavery and from a life of prostitution. In the same way today, we are going to see how God last week prepared Moses to this week to deliver his people from slavery as well. Last week in the first two chapters of Exodus, or several weeks ago, we saw that God's faithfulness and providence on display. Last week we saw that we saw his, his faithfulness on display as the family of Abraham became a large nation while living in Egypt for 400 years. Eventually you saw that they became slaves, but God responds to Israel's cries because of his promise to Abraham. And then God prepares Moses to deliver his people from Egypt as he rescued him from intimate death and gave him into the household of Pharaoh. We are reminded that God hears, remembers, sees, and knows his children. And no matter the circumstances or the suffering that you and I might endure, God never neglects or abandons his children. Now, as we enter the chapters that we prepared for this week, we find that Israel has been blessed by God as their family has grown into a large nation. Yet, that very blessing causes the Egyptians to respond in fear of rebellion and in self-preservation forces these Israelites into slavery and male infanticide, killing of all the male babies. Yet as we enter chapter 3 of Exodus, we read that God has heard and heard their groanings, remembered his covenant, saw their suffering, and he knows just what to do. God is poised now after 400 years to act by sending a deliverer to re relieve them of their suffering. One theologian remarks that God promises to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, but the Israelites struggle to believe in the midst of their oppression. Sounds like very much like us today, does it not? Many times our blessings can lead to suffering. We cry out to God for relief, yet we're still tempted to doubt God's truth, his goodness, and his love for us as he seems to be silent, wondering if our cries are even being heard. Well, these ancient people of God are no different than you and I today. So Father, with that, open up our minds and hearts as we open these pages of Exodus. Help us as we read about these ancient people, this ancient text. Let us see the relevancy for us today. Show us the truth that you are a God who hears and sees, remembers, and knows. And Father, I pray that you stir within us a holy discontent 
for the way that we live and the way that we obey. Lord, I pray that you would push us to love more, to give more, to serve more. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to give you three observations from this passage. Three observations as we look at Exodus chapter 3 and we go up to chapter 7, verse 7. A good portion. Again, I want to encourage you each week. I let you know what we're reading. I want you to, to read, to pray over it, and to prepare your hearts as we look at it together. So the three observations starts with number one. Number one, we see that God calls Moses in a supernatural display of his glory and power over nature. God calls Moses in a supernatural, spectacular display of his glory and power over nature. In Exodus chapter 3, turn there. Moses now skips 40 years of his life in Midian to recount the time God introduced himself through the burning bush. Read with me, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horab, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, Moses has been serving as a shepherd for his father-in-law for the past 40 years in the land of Midian, which is present-day Saudi Arabia. Take your attention to the screen. I put a map up here. Hopefully you can see it. It may be a little bit small here or a little bit. As you see there, there's Midian over here to, to your right over there. You'll see where Saudi Arabia is. Now you'll see that there's the Sinai Peninsula. And then over there across the Red Sea, then you'll see um, Egypt. Now you'll see there on Mount Sinai, the peninsula there, you'll see where it says the traditional Mount Sinai. That's where many believe that Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb is. And that's going to come and play here. And also as we look at the law. But now after some time, they now believe that it was actually Horeb was actually in Saudi Arabia. That's the area that he was at the time. Whether that's the place or whether it's in Sinai, Really doesn't matter, but we see that he comes to a place. He comes to Mount Oreb. He encounters a spectacular sight that draws his attention. A bush that is burning, but is not being consumed. While walking up to the bush, he gets a supernatural surprise in that, in that the flame is actually God himself. The burning bush is what we call a theopony. A theopony is a manifestation of God in the Bible that is a tangible, something that you can see, touch, or hear, or smell in the human senses. In its most restrictive case, it is a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament period, often but not always in a human form. In this sense, it's not a human form, but in the flame of a bush that's not burning. There's other instances of theopanies in which God presented himself. One in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord appeared to Abraham on his arrival in the land and God promised to him and his descendants. Again to Abraham in Genesis 18 where an angel and an, or two angels and another man come and present themselves before Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that to be a theopany, that third person being God. In Genesis 32, we see Jacob wrestling with someone that we recognize as God. And even in Job, God answered Job out of the tempest and spoke at great length in answer to Job's question. So as he approaches this bush, uh, bush Moses recalls in verse 4 <coughs> that when the Lord saw that he turned aside, or when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here am I. In verse 5, he said, then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And through this miracle, God introduces himself as the Holy One who had made a covenant with Moses' ancestors, leading Moses to be fearful. As far as we know through Scripture, this is the first time that God has appeared to a human since Jacob 400 years earlier. His sense of fear is similar to other experiences written in scriptures of those that entered into the presence of the holy God. Joshua, before the battle of Jericho, comes before a a great warrior and he says, who are you? Are you an enemy or are you a foe? And he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. In Isaiah, in the famous scripture, in Isaiah chapter 6, where, where King Uzziah died, and Isaiah is transformed some way, somehow, into the throne room of God. And he said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I have a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. You know, in reading these passages, I believe that fear and worship is the only way to approach a holy God who will one day judge the living and the dead. As God's elect, you and I are not to be fearful of condemnation, but we're mindful that our Father loves us immensely. However, Scripture warns us in Proverbs chapter 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight and that the right response to that fear is to worship the One who created all things. I'm afraid too many times you and I have presented a God who's more like a, a little teddy bear or like a Santa Claus or just harsh like a policeman who's just ready to, to throw the gavel as a judge at you. But he is a God who is holy and one that you and I must approach with fear and reverence and worship. So after 40 years of serving as a shepherd, getting to know the very area that God will eventually leave, have Israel travel, and purging the Egyptians, so to speak, out of him, God is now going to call Moses to leave his occupation, to leave his family and his home, to go to rescue God's children from the slavery they find themselves, and to shepherd them out of Egypt, and lead them to the land God promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which leads us to the second point. God commissions Moses to mediate, mediate with Pharaoh on his behalf. He's going to send him to do his bidding. Now the next passage seems to be connected to verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. If you want to look back at that. Where Moses writes that God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. With Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. I say that because as we read now Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 7 as we read together. Then the Lord said, have I, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to the good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Look at verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression in which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I, I, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, speaking of the Mount Horeb. Now you and I must remember that Exodus was actually written near the end of Moses' life. And that his original readers of the book of Exodus would have been the children of those that were rescued from Egypt. Their parents, 40 years and above, would have died because of their sin. We see that in Numbers, Deuteronomy as we go on. So in here, he's recounting to them what God's promises to their fathers and grandfathers was. In this passage, Moses confirms that God is a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows. He is not a God who is absent, neglectful, or abandoning his children. God has now poised himself to act as he promised Abraham he would do 400 years earlier. Now in chapter 3, God promises that he will send Moses to mediate between Pharaoh and God. God promises to, uh, to rescue the Israelites from bondage, punish the Egyptians for their hardness of heart, enrich the children of Israel by plundering the Egyptians, by changing the heart of the Egyptians to favor the Israelites. Now Moses, though he had been trained in the court of the Egyptians, is an unlikely hero though by the time we come to these chapters. As we come and we look at Moses, Moses is not seeking leadership. He doesn't even believe that he's significant enough. It tells us in chapter 4, he'll say that he's not a good speaker. In verse 13 of chapter 4, he's going to try to get out of it. In chapter 4 again, in verse 24, he doesn't follow the rules. He doesn't completely obey God. And in chapter 5, we see that he's just a good complainer. However, if you glimpse at many of the heroes of faith, they too weren't always the expected choice that you and I would choose. Jacob, their great-great-great-great-grandfather, was wily and deceitful. Joseph seemed arrogant and served as a slave. David, as a shepherd boy, was too young. And the apostle Paul was a persecutor, a terrorist of Christians. I'm sure many times we feel the same way about our own calling and commission. Maybe simply like Amy, we're just not set up for it. But also we have to realize that God has called and commissioned us to mediate his kingdom here on earth. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you. This call and commission has been given to all those that are disciples of Christ. The Bible tells us as ambassadors of Christ that you and I are the aroma of God among those who are being saved. The Apostle Paul would go on to write, To one we're a fragrance of death to death, to another we're a fragrance from life to life. And he asks this question, Who is sufficient for these things? I have to tell you, I'm not. I think if you were honest, you would recognize that you're not. 
I tell you, if it was up to me to make sure that I was smart enough, that I had enough giftedness to debate someone or to persuade them to follow Christ, people would be in danger. But yet he tells us, for we are not like so many, many, many peddlers of God's word, but we're as men and women of sincerity. We're commissioned by God in the sight of God. You and I speak so that all that we can do is we can just speak the words of God. As Moses was called to speak the words of God, you and I are called. So let us take comfort in the words of Paul in which he wrote to the Corinthian church where he wrote, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is, <coughs> excuse me, what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. As we will look and read through, through these books, Moses was not the perfect man. There are many ways he failed. In the same way, you and I must take comfort that even in our failures, even in our weaknesses, we see that God will accomplish his purposes. As we continue, we see that Moses doesn't believe in himself either, which leads us to point three. He's called... He's commissioned, but just as we do many times, Moses contends with God over his calling and commission to rescue the people of Israel. He begins to argue and fight with God and, and makes all these excuses. His question in Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 is where we're going to be going is actually a good question. It has been 40 years since he has been in Egypt. And the last time he was there, he inserted himself into helping them and it did not go as planned. As you might remember from last week, Moses killed an Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite. And then later he tried to mediate between a dispute between two of them, only to have one question his motives and remark that he saw him kill the Egyptian, which led him to flee Egypt. Moses must think there is no way that they would ever follow him down this dangerous path. In Exodus chapter 3, let's read this together, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent to me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, me to you. Now scripture for the first time gives us the personal name of, G of God. I am who I am. This name of God points to his self-existence and eternality. It denotes, I am the one who is, I am the one who will be. In addition to answering his question, God instructs him in verse 15 of that chapter, say this to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Remember, it is I am. He also instructs Moses to gather the elders together and to tell them that God is going to deliver them. He also warns them that Pharaoh will not listen, but God will stretch out my hand, he writes, and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So in this passage of scripture, we won't read all the verses, 
But God promises them land. He promises them resistance. He promises them assistance. And he promises them plunder. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a good plot for a pirate movie. As Moses continues his narrative, he recounts how he argued with God, listing why he could not be the one to lead Israel. The first reason is found in chapter 4 of Exodus. Moses complained of God, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. God responds by giving Moses three miraculous signs to convince them. He says, take your shepherd's staff, throw it down. It turns into what? A snake. He says, pick it up and it turns back into a staff. He then says, take your hand, put it in your coat and take it out. And it turned leprous, white. Puts it back in, comes back out healed. And then he gives them a third one. He says, if they don't believe you, take a cup or a portion of the Nile River, pour it, put the cup in it, take it, pour it out on the ground, and the water will turn to blood. He gives them three signs. This is something that the Jews, the Jews seek for a sign. The Greeks seek for wisdom. So God takes that excuse and puts it away. So Moses follows up with the second reason of why he is the wrong spirit wrong person by stating in verse 10 of chapter 4. Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. For someone who's not eloquent, he sure speaks pretty well or writes very well here. Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. God reminds them that he is the one who created Moses and that he himself will teach Moses what to say. But again, Moses complains in verse 3, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. I pray that's not your response to God's calling and God's commission in your own life. Fed up with Moses' complaining, God responds in verse 14. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth it will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak to you for the people. And it should be to your mouth and you shall be as a God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you do shall do the signs. Finally, recognizing that arguing with God is futile, Moses goes back to his father-in-law. He asks permission to return to Egypt. Moses packs up his wife and children and he heads back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. Exodus tells us that the Lord sent Moses' brother Aaron to meet him and together they gather the elders, they share with them God's word and promises. And in verse 15, we read of a wonderful response. As the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. What a wonderful response. God's word. I wonder sometimes how do you and I respond when we hear God's word, when we read God's word? To respond in the same way. Well, in chapter 5, things do not go as planned, at least as far as Moses and the children of Israel are concerned. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He asks for him to let Israel go and worship in the wilderness, but in his fear and his desire for self-preservation, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he responds in chapter 5, verse 4. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? 
Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh says, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from the burdens. This is the very thing that Pharaoh does not want to happen. He does not want them to continue to propagate. He wants to keep them exhausted. He wants to keep them frustrated. He wants to keep them down. So in retaliation for the request, Pharaoh orders the taskmaster to make the Israelites work harder. He forces them to not only to continue work, but also they have to go and collect all the raw material needed to accomplish their task. As you might expect, the children of Israel are upset with Moses. Instead of releasing them, his intervention has led them to be more exhausted and in drier straits than they ever were before. In frustration, Moses cries out to God in chapter 5, verse 22, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You have not followed through with what you promised. That's what Moses is saying. We're like that today as well. We believe God is going to work miracles in our time, in our manner, for our convenience. We too become frustrated at God's timetable and plan, wondering what in the world is God doing? Why doesn't he just fix my problems now? But as we continue to see, God does have a plan. Now as you and I turn to chapter 6 and 7, God answers Moses and reminds him of his plan to redeem Israel. The first sign of resistance by Pharaoh will not deter God from his plan. God promises in chapter 6 verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God promises them in chapter 6 verse 6, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of, of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. In verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession for I am the Lord. And in verse chapter, excuse me, chapter 7, in verse 1, God informs Moses, See, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your father Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel continue with your call, continue with your commission. But he tells in verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You know, in this passage, we see not only the faithfulness of God to remember his covenant and to keep his promises, but we also see his sovereignty and his providential power. He knows what's going to happen because he is the master author writing down all the details of all the events that will take place, their purposes and its ending. 
Scripture tells us in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is like a stream of water. Imagine uh, like a faucet with a stream of water coming down. He says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hands. And he turns it whatever he will, making the water go where he wants it to go. The prophet Isaiah would quote God's decree by stating, As I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and will, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn back the hand of the Lord? The psalmist will write, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nation. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord will stand forever. And the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Pharaoh, the apostle Paul says, says that it was written that for this purpose, I will raise Pharaoh up to demonstrate my power, that my name might be claimed throughout the whole earth. From this passage, you and I can learn that we can trust in a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows his children. He does not abandon. He does not neglect or forget us. We can learn to trust not only in his promises, but also in his timing. Understandably, we want God to work in our time frame, to bring healing now, to end our suffering, or to grant our request. Yet you and I must learn to trust in the great author of our lives. We also learn to be encouraged that no foe, visible or invisible, can thwart or defeat the Almighty God. Let me tell you, no matter how big your problems are, God is much bigger. No matter how difficult the task He has called you to and commissioned you, it's never too much for Him. You might have heard of the popular slogan, God won't give you any more than you can handle. You ever heard that? God won't give you more than handle. I have to say that that slogan is not biblical. It sounds encouraging and it's a great self-motivator, but in the scheme of things, it's not true. You see, God will give you more than you can handle. What Pharaoh or what Moses was to do was something that he could not do in his own power. However, Jesus taught his disciples that nothing will be impossible with God. You and I cannot make disciples of all the nations without God. We cannot do it within our own power. In other words, you and I need God. We cannot fight sin. We cannot endure suffering. We cannot love our wives or our husbands. You and I cannot raise our children and obey God without the very power and help of God. Amen? What we learn from this passage is that God has called and commissioned Moses to mediate before Pharaoh his plan to redeem his people from Egypt. And like Moses, you and I are called and commissioned as we saw earlier. And like Moses, we too contend with God. We are tempted to doubt God or simply do not follow through. In one strange passage that we skipped, we're going to go back to it. Moses recounts how God almost killed him before he ever got started in his, in his job there. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. God, Moses tells us of a serious family squabble. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, God has called him, he's prepared him, he's now sending him on a mission but we see here as he's on his way to Egypt at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put Moses to death. 
In verse 25, then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, as you might recall from our study in Genesis last summer, God had commanded Abraham that the sign of the covenant was the circumcision of all male children born into his family. And as we read here, Moses, for some reason, did not follow through when his young son was born. And he still had not done it on his way to Egypt. And this was serious enough that God was ready to kill Moses. His wife, in anger, unwillingly does the deed to spare Moses' life. Though this is a strange, out-of-place tale, this teaches us that God expects complete obedience. He calls us, he commissions us, and he expects us to follow through in what he's given us to do. Now I'd like to go ahead and bring it all in if I could. There's several things that struck me as I read and studied and prayed and prepared this message. Three things exactly. One, God is a faithful, providential God who is actively involved in the affairs of men and nations. God is a faithful, providential God who is actively involved in the affairs of men and nations even today. Number two, though Israel doubted their leaders and God, God continued to provide and pursue them. How God continued, how Israel survived is beyond me. If it was up to me, I probably would have killed them. You understand why animals sometimes eat their young as you go through this. But what's so amazing, and in their rebellion, in their sin, in their disobedience of God, God still not only provided for them, but he continually pursued them. Does that kind of remember, uh, uh, kind of remind you of something? And number three, God also called and commissioned a deliverer to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. For just as we see in Exodus, these things were written for our instruction as examples for us. See, Scripture tells us that God, the great author of life, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It tells us that in love he predestined us for the adoptions of son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of will. Just as he chose the Hebrew children, the children of Abraham as children of promises, we too are the children of promise. It goes on to tell us that Jesus was called and commissioned to redeem us. As Moses was, so is Jesus. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses points to the great deliverer. For scripture tells us that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his glory, which we have set forth in Christ, or in Christ as planned. In the fullness of time, Christ was sent. Like Israel, you and I were enslaved, though not to an earthly master, but to the curse. For Paul would say we were dead in our trespasses, and once we once walked, Following the course of this world, the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yet God heard our groaning, and in the fullness of time, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he pursued us and provided us by making us alive together with Christ. And we've been raised up and seated with him 
in the heavenly places. Scripture tells us that this wonderful gift is for all those that repent of dead works and turn and trust in the wonderful works of Jesus. That, what we could not do, Jesus did. What God required, perfect obedience, Jesus acquired. Like Moses and the children of Israel, you and I must obey. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Like Moses, who was called in commission, Jesus our Savior was called in commission to be what Moses could not, that perfect mediator between God and man. And now he's called you and I. He's called and commissioned and called us to mediate between God and men in the same way that we're the fragrance, the aroma. Come, but repent and believe. Repent and believe. Do not contend with God any longer. If you're here this morning and you do not know as a Savior, I pray that you would see him today. I pray that you would hear his call and that you would come and follow him. If you're here today and you have followed Christ, you are a Christ follower, don't contend with him, but believe in him. Trust in him. Follow in complete obedience. Ask for the help that you and I need, that God has provided something greater than Moses to redeem us from our slavery. And let us live a life that pleases him with fear and with worship. Let me end with this word of encouragement that's found in Hebrews chapter 3. Scripture tells us, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond. What would God be calling you to do this morning as he calls and commissions us to follow him with fear and worship? Would you do so this morning? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you just continue to work in our hearts. Lord, as we look at the life of Moses and the Israelites, we see that there's something greater going on. That this is a picture of what you've done for us. And the same way we now are to call and commission to continue to serve and to lead others towards you. Father, strengthen us to do so. Give us a greater measure of faith. And Father, may we point to the one who is the I am. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.